1: Trojan fans, welcome to the Fairstyle Podcast. On a Wednesday, we got another special guest. This week, we have Bruce Feldman from Fox Sports and the Athletic. Last week, if we had Keely You are on vacation, and we bring in one of our own, uh, Gerard Martinez. Follow him on Twitter at Gmart Live. Does a great job as the national recruiting analyst for us here at USCFootball.com. He's gonna talk about the team, some interviews he's done recently, and answer some of the questions that you guys have sent in for Keely and myself. He follows the team too, but. You know, we see him on the recruiting side. We'll get a little team stuff for Gerard Martinez. If you have any questions or comments for our show, you can email us podcast at uscfootball.com. You can also call or text us at 424 254 9141. That is our number. If you have the Apple Podcasting app on any of your devices, like your iPhone, your iPad, follow us here at the Peristyle Podcast. Leave us a five star rating, positive review. We love to read uh, your reviews. We love to get your questions. Put them up there, and we will definitely. Read them. All right. We're gonna without further ado, we gotta bring in Gerard Martinez who's on the line with me right now. Gmart Live, how you doing, bud? I'm doing good. Uh, a little surprised. I thought we were coming on, we're gonna do a recruiting
2: blast, and Ryan throws the curveball, says, We're gonna talk about some team stuff. So I'm kind of interested
1: to see what he asked me about the team and what I say about the team. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you follow the team too. You're not just a recruiting guy. You got it all. And that's, sometimes the insights from the recruit side, and we're going to talk about some incoming freshmen, which you have followed their recruitment heavily. I got to talk with one of them. We'll talk with all about that. So, I mean, we we had Keely gone. I wanted to bring in somebody cool to talk about it. I thought you'd be great.
2: That's d- definitely, we need a change. You know, Keely's not very cool. So uh, we bring in G-Mart live.
1: <laughs> G-Mart, yeah. Uh, we do have one review uh, I want to read from our Apple podcast. It's a five-star review from Trojan Greg. So thanks for that. He's talking about the peristyle negativity. Do I, I don't know what he's talking about, Gerard. Are people negative on the peristyle message board? I'm just <laughs> not sure. He says, I don't go to the negative threads anymore. I look for posts from Dan, Keeley, Shotgun, and Ryan and Gerard. Helton's the coach until he's not. I love when Bruce is on because he always tells it like it is, whether you want to hear it or not. I'm optimistic that Clay McGuire is going to change the offensive line culture, and hopefully be productive. Well, thanks, George and Greg. So, yeah, there's Greg, a, if you're you can... looking for, for for Dan Weber
2: posts, uh, you might be looking for a little while. Dan has been too active on the board, but He's uh, not.
1: he tweets every once in a while. And we did have Bruce on Bruce Feldman on last week, um, but yeah, there's if you, I mean, every email we get basically to the podcast, many of the posts on the Peristyle, which is the USCFootball.com message board. There's some, some some critique of Clay Helton, I guess you could say. I know some fans are, are sick of it, but um, and I, I we got a lot of critique last week because I didn't have Bruce Feldman talk about how terrible Clay Helton is. So, I mean, we just talked about other things and, and people got mad at me. I saw that. I saw that some people felt like, <laughs> press Bruce enough
2: for why. The question why is always uh, at the forefront with USC fans. Why are things the way they are right now? And why does USC not have a Pac-12 championship after the shortened season? Why have they not been able to get back to the Rose Bowl? And obviously, there's a bunch of little questions that formulate that bigger question. You know, whether it be the offensive line play, the running game, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like you know a lot of the fan base feels like we need to hold the flag and we need to be at the forefront of pounding down the door of Heritage Hall to get answers to these questions. And sometimes, you know, they go a little bit too hard on that. And, you know, got to realize that, uh, you know, there's not a lot of answers all the time to everything. It's just one of those things that just has to play itself out. And we have to kind of sit back and allow it.
1: Yeah. I mean, George Greg said it. Clay the coach until he isn't. <clears throat> We've been – you know, we've definitely pointed criticisms towards the administration, towards the coaching staff, but we've, you know, we've been critical. We can't just talk about that every day because there's an actual team that you got to talk about, but it's not like we've been on the sidelines, just waiting to see what's happening, but we just, you can't talk about that every second of every day. Um, but thank you guys for the, the, thanks Greg for the review. And anyone else you want to send those in, I do want to thank Trader Joe's who's been a great sponsor for us over the years. And you go to the website. I like go to there checking out before I go to the store. And sometimes you get some good ideas and I found one how to grill bone in skin on chicken thighs over at traderjoes.com I'm a big uh, chicken thigh guy I just like dark meat a lot and to do the the if you marinate those chicken thighs well and they they recommend using organic sweet and spicy pineapple barbecue sauce which I haven't tried I have to try that throw them on the grill with some grilled pineapple and stuff it looks really good on the website they actually have a uh, a video up there they can kind of show you A YouTube video show you how to do that or what they do, but um, I'm a big chicken thigh guy. I don't know, are you a a dark meat guy, Gerard? Do you like that? I am, especially on Thanksgiving. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's good. Like, I love cooking the turkeys and stuff too. But yeah, try those out. Bone, you know, bone in, uh, skin on chicken thighs uh, from Trader Joe's and that pineapple barbecue sauce. Um, All right, well, let's get into some topics, uh, Gerard, about what's going on with the team. I know you've done a couple of interviews recently and uh, maybe we can get your insights on some of those you can check those all all out at uscfootball.com but uh michael traig is one um you got to uh delve into a little bit maybe talk about that uh interview and uh, what usc fans can expect uh, when he gets in Yeah, I mean, he's probably the most
2: dynamic addition to that 2021 class on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, Obviously, you've got Jackson Dart already on campus. Uh, You've got a few guys already on campus. He's not on campus yet, so he's going to be, an addition, going to get down to uh, the campus around late June, June 30th, which is interesting because it's pushed back a little bit uh, for freshmen. Usually we see freshmen come in around mid-June. Uh, like June 20, 22nd. But June is just going to be a crazy, insane month for the coaching staff and the football staff in general because you're going to have the recruiting process opening back up June 1st. So that means that's the first time USC football coaches are going to be able to evaluate and have evaluation periods for kids. They're going to have camps. They're going to have official visits. And this is going to be the first time that you're going to be able to have guided official visits for recruits on campus for the 2022 class. So it's going to be insane. It's going to be crazy. And I think they've kind of pushed back a little bit of the enrollment because then that's another thing that you're adding on top of it of the rest of the 2021 class. So Trigg's not coming in until about June 30th. Um, He's going to come in with his folks. And he's a very dynamic, interesting part of the receiving core. And USC fans were not real happy with... The way the wide receiver position was recruited last year, and I think really I had a lot to do with the losses of two five-star guys, Amon Ra, St. Brown, and Tyler Vaughn's and so you're expecting as a USC fan to get at least another five-star from that, and in addition to that, Oregon recruited very well. Oregon probably had their best receiving class ever, and you know, USC fans are looking at Oregon and they're looking at them running the ball and they're looking at them really being sort of a run first offense up there with Mauro Cristobal and wondering, we throwing the ball 80 percent of the time. Why aren't we getting more receivers? And so, you know, USC got Michael Jackson, the third, who is going to be a very good receiver. Unfortunately, got injured in spring football. Um, we're able to get uh, Manjack, you know, Joseph Manjack, who is a sort of a legend unto himself coming out of the recruiting process, a guy who I thought was a bit underrated i think he deserved to be a low 4 star had crazy insane numbers his name his numbers receiving were akin to jackson darts numbers throwing the ball out of high school and so i think he's going to be you know a, a pretty big time prospect and somebody that is going to be a guy that could make some waves here and there early i think you know there would have to be maybe you know an injury or two or something that where he's going to get a ton of reps But I think Joseph Manjack's a guy that could definitely flash, and I think he's a better player than he was rated. And then they had uh, Kyron Ware-Hudson, who they were able to get away from Oregon. He was part of that Oregon class. So, again, good players, but we're talking about, you know, some lower four stars and some three stars, and not necessarily that, uh, you know, uh, Marquise Lee, Robert Woods, um, Nelson Aguilar— type of five-star player. And when you're throwing the ball as much as USC is, the fans were getting frustrated, but I think they weren't also including Michael Trigg in there because Michael Trigg is rated as a tight end. And, you know, USC doesn't use the tight end position traditionally, Hardly ever. I mean, they do feel it, obviously, with Eric Cromenholtz, but he tends to be a bit more of a blocking tight tight end than a guy that's featured in the passing game. What USC does and, and what they really sold on the recruiting trail was using Drake London as a quasi tight end out of the slot. So basically, a detached why that is used in the slot that is still a bit of a mismatch and that's exactly what michael Trigg is michael Trigg didn't play tight end in high school he played almost exclusively wide receiver played a little defensive end as well and so this is a guy that had some really great numbers coming out of high school his junior year didn't have quite as insane numbers i think he only had 32 receptions for like you know 500 plus yards Uh, in six touchdowns as a senior but a guy that you know as a junior averaged 22 points a game in basketball he really has a little bit on film that look of a guy that is that tweener two sport athlete I kind of compared him a little bit to Mike Williams the old wide receiver at USC that was under Pete Carroll Um, probably not quite as tall but a guy that once he gets the ball in his hands Runs like a running back. I mean, he runs with purpose. He is like Drake Jackson in that way also. Drake is a good comparison because, like Mike Williams, you get that ball. They're looking to score. They're not looking around and looking to kind of, oh, well, maybe I'll get a yard or two. Maybe I'll fall down. I'm not really sure. He's a guy that gets his, his shoulder square and gets a field, and he's going to run somebody over or he's going to juke somebody. He, when you watch his film out of high school, is really, really good with the ball in his hands in the open field for a guy that big. He's running about 240 right now, 6'4", and he's going to be interesting. And maybe the most interesting thing he said out of this whole conversation, Ryan, was that – or I should say his father did – Drake London is going to kind of move outside, and that is going to open up a spot for him to maybe get more reps in that slot. So what he was saying is that Clay Helton in the, in the recruiting power process and the coaching staff through the recruiting process had sold them on sort of replacing Drake Jackson. Well, excuse me, Drake London while Drake London is still on the roster because Drake London is going to play in order to try to get more out of his draft stock, more to the outside. And so that's something that's going to be interesting to see is Drake London going to play more as a true wide receiver next season. And that's going to open up a spot for that sort of hybrid tight end wide receiver in the slot.
1: All right. Well, that's uh, I think USC fans are pretty excited about a guy like Michael Tregg coming in, uh, but not as excited as a guy like Corey Foreman coming in, uh, you know, and he looks like he's going to wear number zero. When he's at USC, that'll be interesting. First time we've seen that. Uh, what was, uh, talk about the story of on Corey Foreman.
2: You know, Corey is just ready to get on the field. Um, I think uh, he's really excited to wear that number zero. And the number zero, you know, it's sort of, I felt without it being said, is kind of linked to name, image, likeness, kind of linked to the Boulevard. USC trying to accentuate um, the brand, if you will. And because he mentioned something that was very interesting in wearing that number zero is that it's the first person, the first football player at USC to ever wear that number, which is true. And we know with USC, numbers mean a lot. They're a big deal at USC. You've got 55, you've got numbers that are retired because of Heisman Trophy winners. And so I think, you know, with him, he felt like he could kind of start a legacy a bit with the number zero. And uh, when you start talking about going out and buying jerseys, you know, he said, listen, somebody goes out to the USC store to buy the number two. Maybe they're buying the number two for the player that's wearing it today. Maybe they're wearing it because of a Dory Jackson. Maybe they're wearing it because of Robert Woods. You know that if you go to the bookstore and you buy the number zero, you're buying it right now because of Corey Foreman. And I think Corey also felt that there's definitely expectations that come with that. There's a little bit of pressure on his shoulders because he realizes he's representing a new number at USC and you can't screw that up. You can't do things that are, you know, as he said, the incorrect thing, he has to do the correct thing, whether it be on the field, off the field and he has to make sure that he represents that number well. Just as if, you know, you're wearing a number 55 or another number that had a legacy to it. He wants to start a legacy with that number zero. So I found that very interesting. That was a, a big part of his recruitment. And I think that overall message from USC really hit home. And like I said, I think it is sort of linked long term to name image likeness. And we're going to see, you know, how that goes. Obviously, that's already been in some states um, cleared as a thing that you can do. Uh, We'll see if, um, you know, nationally, if there's sort of a federal law that uh, is backed up uh, in July where uh, everybody is basically going to be able to start uh, marketing their brand, if you will, as players and schools being sort of involved with that, sort of not involved with that. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be a complete new chapter in college football. So Corey Foreman being number one player in the country for the 2021 class, he's part of that. I mean, he's at the cusp of that. Um, something else, you know, we talked about a little bit was just him and Drake Jackson playing again. He's talked to Tar the defensive coordinator, about um, playing, you know, in formations and doing things. He didn't want to get into specifics about that, which is totally understandable. But um, you know, just being able to have him there and, and, and Drake Jackson, a guy that's obviously already proven himself to be a very good pass rusher at USC, uh, developing into a new position, you know, and kind of trying to, you know, get to know that. I, I said that. You know, during the recruiting process when Corey Foreman was being recruited by USC, that he really plays that position, that uh, predator slash B-backer slash jack backer, whatever you want to call it in the tight front, probably better more naturally than Drake Jackson does. Drake Jackson, well, he's a guy that had his hand in the ground when he played at Cronus Centennial. And uh, Corey's been a guy that has stand, he's been a little bit of a stand-up linebacker. In fact, they used him his junior year a bit, as a middle linebacker in pass rush situations, just to kind of change it up and try to get him North and South and get him upfield attacking the offensive pocket and trying to get different looks of him trying to pass rush. And uh, so he's a little more familiar with actually playing in in, in an Island and maybe playing in the flats a little bit, playing in the curl. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, is my, my whole thing was, you know, I, they really should probably move Drake Jackson back down and just let him go as a five technique, as a defensive end – And then put Corey Foreman in there and let him compete for that job of of kind of playing the stand-up role. Um, So we'll see what happens with that. Um, There's been talk like they could play opposite sides of each other. Then there's talk that maybe Corey is just going to sort of stay behind Drake and and be a guy that backs up Drake. So we're going to have to see in fall camp, you know, how they use Corey Foreman and uh, the type of impact he's able to have. Because, you know, they, they, they really did play well last year defensively. I think they played better defensively, certainly in the back end. Um, and they did show some flashes for some guys up front. So if they're able to continue that, then you're adding a guy like Corey Foreman to the mix. And, um, you know, hey, if the other team can't score, they can't win.
1: Drew, and I think, I mean, as far as recruits go, has there been someone more anticipated uh, to get on campus than Corey Foreman in mean, a long time? I mean, it's been It's been a while, I think.
2: Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, you get the number one player in the state, it's a big deal, but you get the number one player in the country, and it's a really, really big deal. Uh, He's a little more of a household name, and you know, I mean, it would probably be even bigger if he played his senior year, because he didn't play in the shortened season during the spring, he played a little bit during the fall for the club circuit with Winter Circle, Uh, But that's not the same as playing for Corona Centennial Friday nights and you're on Fox and you're playing in playoff games and you're, you know, competing for a CIF championship and people know your name before you get to campus. So it actually probably is lessened than it would be. But I think a lot of people are still very interested to see, you know, him on campus. Uh, It was a really good class overall. And like I said, you know, I know I end up being like the defense attorney for the USC coaching staff sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) recruiting. But, you know, I think, the you know, going back to Trig and just the receiver class, I think it was very solid. You know, I think it was very good. Yes, USC's got to get that guy that's that sort of gravitational point, that five-star. They got Gary Bryant the year before, and I think he has potential to be a really, really good player. And they didn't lose much from that. So then you lose Michael Pittman, and now you lose Amon Ra, St. Brown, and Tyler Vaughn's. So, you know, you have those two five-stars that are now gone now, this is the class that they really have to strike. This is the class that they really have to go and get at least one of those guys that's sort of a marquee part of the class in the receiving core.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't mention it at the top. I apologize. My, I'm a little under the weather, so my, my voice is going in and out. My apologies. I uh, just had a little cold the last couple of days. Uh, but you talked about not playing your senior year. And one player that did and certainly took advantage of that was Jackson Dart, the USC freshman quarterback. And I was on a press conference with him. Well, there was a press conference yesterday. Uh, He was named the 2020-2021 Gatorade National Player of the Year. And what they did was they went over to Corner Canyon High School, Draper, Utah, where he's from, and they had Trevor Lawrence virtually uh, give him the award so they was they got the talk over uh skype or whatever and um you know that his teammates had him his award and uh it was really cool and then we did a i you know i was able to do a one-on-one uh video interview with um jackson and uh we sat down for about 10 minutes and uh just chatted about uh some different things so i want to get a couple thoughts from you gerard but he's uh really the fifth usc quarterback that's that's won this award um Three of those guys transferred, you know, so JT Daniels obviously transferred. He's at Georgia now. Max Brown ended up transferring to to Pitt. Matt Barkley stayed at USC. And uh, Mitch Mustaine transferred in. Um, so, but he's the fifth Gatorade player of the year. And uh, it was kind of, it's cool. And for a guy like that, I mean, he didn't have a Division One offer after his junior year. So he'd be one of those guys that who knows where he would be if he didn't play his senior year. But Utah had high school football. He exploded on the scene, and now he's at USC.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, the recruiting process was very interesting for him because he was one of those guys that was more of a late bloomer, and you can compare that to Sam Darnold to some extent, and there is a lot of comparisons that USC Trojan fans make between he and Darnold, and I understand that. I see it for sure. Um, I think with Dart he really, as a as a quarterback in high school, is, is accomplished a lot more than even Darnold did. Darnold was, you know, as a sophomore playing uh, some linebacker, and I think he was offered by Utah as a linebacker. So um, things sort of changed and progressed for him, you know, kind of slowly, but he was definitely on the radar for a lot of teams, whereas Dart just kind of exploded. And the numbers are just insane for him. I mean, you know, almost – 4,600 passing yards, almost 4,700 passing yards, 70% completion percentage, 67 touchdowns with only four interceptions. And I think, you know, during that recruiting process, USC had Jake Garcia committed for a while. He ended up at uh, Miami and actually played for Miami in the spring ball and looked pretty good for Miami in the spring ball. Um, They had Miller Moss already committed. And so it was, you know, one of those things where you're kind of juggling – If you're USC, you like what you have. You have two four-star quarterbacks, two of the top nation's quarterbacks. Do you push for somebody that potentially brings something different to the table? And what he brings to the table is that he can move outside the pocket and he can run. And that is something USC has not had since Sam Darnold. And they kind of gone away from it even on the recruiting trail. They haven't recruited a guy like Jackson Dart. Now, it's easier because Jackson has obviously a tremendous arm and he's a tremendous passer. I mean, you don't pass for that many yards and be that accurate with that many touchdowns unless you have a, a lead arm and you have very good decision making. And he is a guy that even though he can run and he's a big kid, he's about 6'3", 225, uh, he does keep his eyes downfield and he's trying to make the most – Uh, out of being mobile and scrambling. But he's a guy that's big enough, strong enough, and fast enough where, you know, on third and six, he could gash the defense for 20 yards, you know. And that's, that's, that's something that's big. Maybe what's bigger, and this is really where Darnold shined at USC, was just negating the negative plays. That is absolutely huge in college football. Having a play that goes negative five yards where your quarterback gets sacked for negative seven it almost kills the whole drive. In so many instances, when you get backed up and you get negative plays on a drive, that that play itself kills the drive. And USC seen that over the years. Just being able to get a yard. You know, those instances where Sam Darnold was able to just step outside the pocket, run around a bit, and say, you know what, I'm just going to go forward and I get two yards out of it. Big deal, two yards. It doesn't show up big on um, the, the box score, it's not like a big play that is going to end up on Center, but it ends up being an absolutely monumental play for the drive because it ended up being plus two instead of negative seven. And like I said, in college football, coming back from those type of plays when you've got all of a sudden now you got a third and 13, I mean, that's just very, very hard for most offenses to be able to recover from. So a guy like Jackson Dart brings that to the table. He's big, he's strong, he's going to be able to break away from some tackles, whether it's in the pocket or outside the pocket, and he's going to be able to lean forward and get some positive yardage. And that just changes everything in terms of play calling and what you're able to do in that series.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, you would mentioned Sam Darnold like 10 times in your answer there, right? Like you talked about him a lot, the late bloomer thing, the athleticism, and I, I brought it up to him, like, is there a you know, a quarterback. You model your game after. A lot of people were, you know, comparing you to Sam Darnold. And the first name he said was Tom Brady. You know, uh, which is right. So it kind of shows you where his mindset's at. That you know, yeah, hey, you could run, but he wants to be in the, you know, the, the pocket passing. He mentioned a lot of great NFL quarterbacks. Um, you know, Trevor Lawrence being one of them. Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson. Uh, so I don't know if he was, I'm not gonna say avoiding the Darnold comparisons, but. You know, that's a guy that was at USC fairly recently and maybe, you know, you don't want you don't be like, I'm not gonna be the next Sam Darnold. I gotta be, you know, the the I I gotta be Jackson Dart, you know.
2: You you compare Sam Darnold to Tom Brady at this point and uh you know, Sam Darnold is a great player at USC for a couple years, but yeah, I mean that's capping yourself a little bit to say yeah, kind of kind of look at my my myself as Sam Darnold, and you're going okay. Well, what's Sam Darnold done in the NFL? You know, Sam Darnold uh, also had 22 uh, turnovers by himself uh, that uh, redshirt sophomore year at USC. So yeah, I can understand why Jackson Dart's like yeah, Sam Darnold, great, great quarterback, did some great things at USC. But man, I mean, I'm looking at the top of the heap here and that's Tom Brady, Mr. Super Bowl champion everywhere I go. That's uh, Patrick Mahomes, I could throw it behind my back. Uh yeah, man. I mean, you know, go back to John Elway maybe and that that yeah, okay. That's 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 a little better. So I can understand it. You don't want to cap yourself, you know, with your comparisons. You want to be able to look at guys that are doing things that are above and beyond. Um I mean, for me personally, I don't know if I see a lot of Tom Brady in Jackson Dart's game. Um, I would probably go for more of a guy like maybe an LA or a guy that was a little bit more mobile, but I'm looking that at that from the outside in. It's not, you know, me comparing myself to somebody or or not necessarily comparison because I think probably that question, the context was, you know, who are you looking at to try to take things from, you know, in terms of your game and, and modeling your game after. And really, yeah, I think every quarterback has to look at Tom Brady. <laughs> you, you that's just crazy the, you know, going from New England and what he did and then turning around going to Tampa Bay and winning a Super Bowl.
1: That's pretty special. Also, you mentioned uh, Michael Jackson earlier about you know, wide receiver recruiting. That's his roommate. They seem to have a, a good connection. So, to have that kind of connection with a fr- you know, two freshmen, a freshman quarterback, a freshman wide receiver, you know, that's a potential for a hookup for years to come.
2: Yeah, and I think Michael Jackson is going to be just a, a great asset to the program. Um, USC's trying to recruit Vegas. Vegas has, uh, you know, got some really good players the next couple years. And uh, that's a kid that's just a really good kid, really easy to talk to, very articulate, smart kid, picked USC for the right reasons. You know, unfortunately, he goes down in spring ball, but he's a guy that I could see hosting a lot of those visitors. You've got a kid like uh, Javante Barnes, who's a six foot hundred ninety five pound running back uh, out of um, uh, Desert Pines High School and a former teammate. And so I think, uh, you know, running back. Recruiting is obviously going to be big for USC uh, this cycle, and, um, you know, just having somebody from the Vegas area that, uh, that, that can talk about USC and, and represent USC well, I think will help USC in the recruiting process quite a bit. And so, um, yeah, I think he's one of those kids that, uh, you know, was, was making a little bit of a splash in spring ball, it was very polished. Um, you know, had some attributes that were similar to Amon Ross St. Brown. I mean, I think physically sort of, you watch him move and everything. Um, there was, there was some uh, traits there that you could pull and, and see the comparisons. Um, it's unfortunate he goes down, but uh, he'll be able to, you know, to redshirt and and go through, you know, the process of learning. He probably wasn't going to get a ton of reps this year, um, but certainly uh, here in the near future, he's going to be a guy that's going to be called upon.
1: Yeah. Um, we you know, we got to talk a little recruiting. We, I know there's a whole huge list of official visitors coming up. So June 1st, if you don't know, if you don't follow the recruiting calendar, typically May is a busy recruiting month because there's a May evaluation period. And that's like, what, about six weeks, Gerard, that coaches can be out in the road and checking out prospects. Well, uh, everything was on hold until June 1st, and now, There's just going to be visitors going crazy. So camps and whatever you're going to do, but a lot of official visitors uh, coming. I mean, this is going to be maybe one of the craziest recruiting months ever. Right? I mean, I just to have it all over a year of no any kind of contact with prospects and coaches. It's all going to happen as fast as you can in June, it seems like.
2: Yeah. And I think schools are just uh, they want to get on it early because they just don't want to get sort of left behind with kids maybe just wanting to get the recruiting process done early. It's a very weird dynamic because obviously kids have not really been recruited normally for more than a year, this class. But at the same time, uh, there's this sense that a lot of kids could just commit during the summer and end it. Now, that's been the trend. You know with the early signing period that a lot of players have been committing earlier and beginning the process done before september so it is just one of those things that i think schools are like hey man we just want to get these kids on campus it could be a really big deal they haven't been on campuses uh really uneven unofficially you know they have not had any guided tours if anybody was taking uh, a campus visit over the last year plus it was just them and their parents kind of showing up and walking around the campus So I think the feeling is, hey, man, you know, when the coaches are there and the staff is there, that these kids are going to really feel, you know, like, oh, man, this is going to be the school for me, every school they go to. So you want to be one of those five schools that's on that list during the summer. And I think a lot of the programs kind of want to get things sort of settled a bit, you know, with the recruiting class coming out of the summer as well. And so, yeah, USC has been very aggressive and scrambling to try to get as many visitors, on-campus as possible. I think probably overplayed it a bit and brought and scheduled some visits for some kids that were more long shots that they thought, well, you know what, let's just get kids on campus and try to get some traction with some of these guys that are out of state. And now we've seen some visits rescheduled, some canceled because they're sort of now honing in a little more on the guys that they think are more important to recruit, the guys they have, you know, a decent shot at. Uh, With it still a little mix of some players there that, you know, are maybe a little more of a long shot, but potentially, you know, a good official visit during the summer and a good season because you've got to back it up on the field could end up, you know, turning some kids that maybe people think at this point in time, uh, USC is on the outside looking in for. So, I mean, right now you've got, uh, you know, approximately 30 or so official visitors that are coming in and uh, throughout the month of June. And we'll see if that, you know, that number changes a little bit or not. But it's going to be relatively uh, a a, maybe the biggest month. I mean, I I don't know that January or December, um, even going back to the Pete Carroll days, there was I mean, there's been bigger weeks, you know, in and of themselves. that USC has had. But in terms of the whole month, I don't think there's anything that's ever compared to that. And that's going to be true across the board, across the country for just about every college football team that there is.
1: Yeah, I mean, even USC, they just were they were picking and choosing a lot of the official visitors more. You didn't have a lot of, you know, eight guys are officially visiting this weekend or whatever. And it would be like a two or three weekends in a row, potentially, that were that were big, but not like a whole month like this. Like this is just this is new territory just because of the way the pandemic shut things down for so long.
2: And I think, you know, the first month's gonna be, or excuse me, the first week. Uh, in June is going to be very interesting because that kind of sets it off. And USC has been especially aggressive trying to get some receivers on campus, trying to get offensive linemen on campus. That first, you know, week I'm looking at it, you've got Devin Campbell, who's uh, an offensive lineman. He's he's really a guard, 6'3 through 10. Is a five-star from Arlington, Texas. Um, That's a guy that's more of a traction guy. That's a guy that, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, really, like the Big Twelve, those are the schools that are that have been leading for him for a while, and USC is trying to kind of get into the conversation there. So that's you know one guy on one side of the spectrum. Then you've got you know uh, a guy that I, I think probably maybe the biggest uh, early um, visitor that USC is going to bring in, and Gavin uh, Sawchuk, who's a five-star running back from Littleton, Colorado, who already unofficially visited USC with his father and was on campus. And had a good, unguided, unofficial visit, self-guided, unofficial visit, but didn't necessarily really rave about the program. I mean, it didn't feel like, okay, USC is the leader coming away from this visit. A lot of people feel like Oklahoma is still the leader. Now, Oklahoma has the commitment of Rayleigh Brown. And Rayleigh Brown is the four-star running back from Modern Day High School transferred down from Edison Stockton. And so... You know, Relic is there, and that's a pretty big-time player to have and then try to get another player. They're also, and we talked about Javante uh, Barnes earlier from Las Vegas, they're also a lead school for him. So you've got three running backs there that USC is also recruiting and also wants that are looking at Oklahoma. It's really going to be an Oklahoma versus USC sort of battle for those players, and it's going to be who gets the best of that. You know I mean? Because it looks like Oklahoma is pretty poised to sign at least two. Uh, They may go for all three, but they're going to try to get at least two of those players. And USC really needs two of those players. Now, they've got some other prospects as well. But I think, you know, USC, if they could come out of the summer getting Javante Barnes and Gavin Sawstuck, that would be I mean, that's as good as you can get for USC right now. That's it. That's exact. That would be plan A for them right now. So um, he's probably one of the biggest visitors. That's going to be a big visit for them at the running back position, setting off that big month of, uh, of June. And then it just follows up with, with more players. I mean, they've also got the Anthony Gadsden coming in. Who's a, who's a three-star guy who would probably be maybe, you know, in my estimation on the board, a little lower. Um, you're trying to get Barnes, you're trying to get Sawstruck. So, you know, you have another running back there. Um, it's going to be one of those things where you're going to have that, that balance of guys that you're sort of trying to get some traction with. And then guys you're trying to close the deal with.
1: Right. Uh, we have one more thing I wanted to talk about. And do you happen to see Operation Varsity Blues on Netflix? No. Yeah. yeah. So I just watched that today. So I'll just kind of bring it up. I know there's been some, it came out like in early March, I think. Uh, the reviews weren't, I don't think the reviews were awesome for it, but uh, I, you know, it was neat to kind of just, it was reenacted and stuff, but every, all the conversations were actually taken from like the FBI wiretaps. And uh, it was funny to kind of go through the process again, you know, knowing that USC was uh, heavily involved. And I don't, you know, overall, I mean, when you're talking about schools like Yale and Georgetown and Harvard and Stanford, and the fact that USC is there, the whole point of, I mean, they're talking about prestige is the big reason why students want to get into these schools. It's not, you know, when they rank them in USC, you know, world report or whatever. It's, uh, it's, it's about prestige. It's not about like, Oh, this is the best dental school or whatever it is. It's like, which, which school is the most prestigious. That's why they don't let as many people in. And it's the more exclusive you are. And like, this certainly puts USC on that level as far as prestige goes, but man, it was crazy. You'd see, um, you know, the Rick singer stuff and how, you know, he pretty much got caught up early. um, where it was like they arrested somebody else for some other like finance charge. And he like points them to this scandal. And then the the Yale, I think with the Yale soccer coach, like flipped right away. It was like, oh, by the way, here's Rick Singer. He's the guy you want. Then they get Rick Singer and then he flips and they just, they had already tapped his phones. And he, so they heard everything he was saying. And then he basically sets up everyone else, you know, and, and re-talks to them and lets them re-say that, oh yeah, you got my kid into school. But the stuff where, like, you had a proctor that would, like, admission, you know, do the tests, you know, uh, be the uh, proctor for tests, you know, for, like, ACT or SAT and would just take them himself. He gets paid, like, 15 grand and gets you a, whatever score you want. Um, and then, you know, the, the USC connection, uh, Donna Heinel, um, you know, being they, – they didn't really go into her stuff too much. She pleaded not guilty uh most of the people, the parents are involved, pleaded guilty and they got like four months in prison, like a oh kind of a range like that. But um, so the water polo coach, he hasn't he's pled not guilty, and Donna Heinel's not guilty as well. But uh there's a lot of evidence, uh, it seemed, you know, from what this was saying, like against her, her being the you know, the athletic director that was involved in all this. But it was kind of interesting if you want to check it out. Uh it's, you know, it's sort of just kind of a rehash. I don't think there's anything um super new in it. And it's just sort of like reenacted, but all of the conversations are from those wiretap tapes that the, uh, that the FBI had, but to have like a sting like this, 50 people involved. Um, they did interview one coach, the uh, Stanford uh, sailing coach um, who, I guess he was the only coach that didn't take money for himself. He, all, the bribes were all to help the Stanford, uh, you know, um, sailing program. So he didn't get a jail time. He had, like, probation and, like, house arrest or something like that. But it was interesting. If you want to check out a Netflix thing, it's, uh, you know, two hours or something like that.
2: Yeah, I remember there was an interesting article from the L.A. Times that included uh, Pat Hayden, who sort of um, seemed like he was trying to get ahead of the uh, the lynch mob, maybe, with, <laughs> with that whole thing and uh, his involvement with uh, Singer and um, his uh, communication with Singer, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, a lot of people uh, sort of raised an eyebrow uh, over that article.
1: Yeah, uh, for him. I mean, and I think that the same thing with um, the, uh, I forget the the coach's name, but the sailing coach for Stanford said that the athletic director knew, you know, Singer and like, and they've come out and said that they don't, Uh, you know, he did not know Singer. It was, there was one interesting, the, um, the sailing coach is like, you know, I'm, I'm a good sailing coach. I'm not very good at raising money. And so that's kind of what he was doing here. And he said, like, they were in a meeting. He just won, like, the national championship. And, like, the athletic director didn't even, like, look at him. Like, and they were having some meeting with, you know, several coaches and never, like, hey, congratulations, win the championship. Like, basically, he didn't care until it came to the fundraising stuff. Like, yeah, keep it up. And uh, and uh you know, the reason he was good at fundraising because he had Rick Singer, you know, providing the money and stuff. But That was interesting. Yeah. The Donna Heinle stuff, because she was an actual athletic director getting involved. I mean, I, to me, that's a Pat Hayden thing where they had this committee that would meet every two weeks to, uh, you know, go over athletes. And the documentary said like, there were things that you should have seen easily, like uh, on the transcripts, like this, this player can't be an athlete, you know? Um, But I guess they this committee didn't catch it and if they if they did question it, Donna Heinel was there to kind of gloss it over. But she was I forget what they was she was getting like twenty grand a month or something from Singer. Um so USD it was deep because it wasn't just one coach that Singer had. He had an athletic director that could get in for multiple sports. So that that was kind of the crazy part.
2: Where's the NCAA involved in all this? I mean, is that something that they even are part of in terms of investigation I mean it seems anytime you get the real authorities involved in these things the NCA sort of takes a backseat and there really isn't a lot of conversation about that it seems like they're only involved when they are you know leading the uh, the way yeah. the charge if you will
1: Yeah I don't know I haven't really heard anything uh, about that I mean there's still cases I think Rick Singer is still uh free because he cooperated now he he's uh, pleaded guilty to some charges and he's still waiting to be sentenced but um not sure if that's going to happen uh, until all these other cases are are settled so because his job i guess his job isn't done until you know all the indictment everything all the cases are are finished and there's some people that did plead not guilty a bunch of people pleaded guilty so they kind of already moved on All right. uh, Why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and uh, answer some questions back in a minute.
0: Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: All right, we're back here on the Parastyle Podcast. Special guest Gerard Martinez is going to answer the questions that me and Keeley would normally answer. Uh, Gerard, we got a voicemail from our buddy Jason in Longhorn Country. I'll play it for you now.
2: Hello, this question is for Ryan and Keeley. And I was just calling to see what position group you guys think has to play the best this year outside of the offensive line and quarterback position room to for USC to win the conference. Fight on, Jason Longhorn-Country. Yeah, I mean, obviously, quarterback is huge. Offensive line is huge. And offensive line is kind of tied to quarterback. Uh, Keaton Slovis has to have some pass protection uh, to be able to uh, stay on two feet this season. But if we take that out of the equation, gosh, it's so, a tough one. I'm not sure. Say, I mean, I, I mean, you know, the receivers obviously have to play well, also because you're going to be throwing the ball a lot. Um, you know, we could look at the running back position, but you know, USC went five and one, and they did not run the ball well at all last year. In An yeah. important season, actually, this year, last season in a shortened season, they didn't run the ball at all. They were still able to to win those games. They really should have won some of those games by more than they did. It's, it's, it's such a weird year, you know? And I I think last year, and I haven't really talked about this, obviously, because I don't talk much about the team, but I think that the taste in the fans mouth is still sort of like, "Ah, I don't know, like what they should have lost some of those games. I mean, if you're being very objective as to how they played, they played bad more quarters in that shortened season, then they play well. I mean, it's just, they, they, they played bad for so many quarters and then were able, you know, last four minutes of the game, basically play like everybody thought offensively they should have played like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Where was this? Where was the offense? Where's the receivers in the passing game, you know, for three and a half quarters. Oh, there it is. And then they were able to to squeeze out uh, a few of those wins. And so, You know, you see the flashes of what could be with USC's offense. It's particularly with their passing offense. The run offense, they still haven't figured out. So, to talk about, well, you know, the running game is going to be very important. Uh, Keontae Ingram, it's going to be very important how he plays. I mean, is it? You know, I mean, it'd be great (laughs) to have more balance. But I don't know that that's necessarily what's going to hinge on them playing particularly well. Um, I think... um, It's really a a, a tough thing to look at the defensive side of the ball and see one position group and say, okay, this is the position group that has to play so much better. I mean, I think you're going to lose Marlon Tui-Polotu. That's going to be pretty big. He played pretty well for USC in the middle. And I think in that defense, you got to have a guy in the middle over that center that's able to take up some double teams because you really want your linebackers to be making a lot of those plays uh, in the A-gaps and putting a lot of pressure on the quarterbacks. talked about this before defensively, the scheme, the philosophy, they want to let their linebackers loose. They want to let their linebackers attack the line of scrimmage. It's not really a blitz. That's just sort of the scheme. So in order to do that, you've got to get those offensive linemen covered, and the defensive line has to keep them occupied. So when you lose a guy like Tui Polotu, you know, there's going to be a question mark. Can they get uh, Ishmael Sopcher to come in and be that guy that can do that? He's going to have to be, if uh, you're not going to have maybe a guy like Jay Toya, who's a freshman coming in, being able to do that. I think that's a big drop off. I think Jay Toya is going to be a good player for USC. But right now, I don't think that he's ready to be Marlon Tui-Polotu. So you really have to put it on Ishmael Sopcher because you lose Brandon Peely to injury for the year. So maybe that's the the, the specific You know, sort of weak spot the zone where you really kind of have to look at how does that affect the rest of the defense? They've got a good defensive line coming back. They've got some good pass rushers. But the middle of that defense, are you able to protect yourself against the run? And are you in pass rush situations able to take that center and perhaps bring that guard over? Because what we saw during the season, during the shortened season, was the linebackers becoming increasingly more involved and having more and more tackles because Marlon Tui-Pelotu opened the season and was so good at the beginning of the year. He really kind of faded because they started double teaming him more. And once they started double teaming him, well that opens it up for the two inside linebackers to be able to get up in those A-gaps.
1: Yeah. I think it's a good question. I would think they're running backs, but your point about they didn't run the ball, it didn't matter is fair. Um, I, you know, I might go on the linebackers just because that's, you know, Todd Orlando's group. I don't think they played particularly well early and they got better later. There's injuries, there's defections, you know, what what's going to happen there. I'd, I'd like to see that group play well, but there's, you know, there's I, I, I have a lot more confidence on the defensive side of the ball probably than the offensive side right now, which is weird, but I think I do. Well, we saw
2: adjustments on the defensive side of the ball. I think that's the biggest thing that we saw last year is the fact that they came out in games and they didn't play well in some games. I mean, look at the UCLA game. They couldn't tackle. They were taking bad angles. And you're going, oh, man, the defense just looks like they're playing on skates right now. But you saw adjustments into the second quarter and then in the second half. And all of a sudden, they sort of just tuned in. And you all of a sudden you saw, oh, Drake Jackson starting to get some pass rush. You got a sack here. Oh, you get, you know, on big downs they became crucial where they get a turnover. They sort of adjusted as the game went on, and that tends to be what good defenses do. You know, Pete Carroll had some defenses where they'd be down 14 nothing, and all of a sudden you're going, wow, oh, man, what's going on? They're, they're just getting run on like crazy, and all of a sudden, you know, they just change some things up, make some adjustments, slant a little bit, maybe bring quarter blitz here, do some things. They see what the offense wants to do, and they counter it, and that's really what a good defensive coordinator does and that's what USC did last year as a defense it was really on the offense that just seemed like they had no clue what they wanted to do for the first three quarters and it was kind of like you know all the way up until the Oregon game where you're just going did you guys practice actually the Oregon playbook like I mean were you were you just out there like installing your own plays? like USC's offense in the Oregon game which was the Pac-12 championship game it looked like something you would run in the spring ball showcase It was not against the actual defense. It was just, this is what we do, and this is what we kind of like to do, so this is what we're going to run, and these are the plays we're going to call, not these are the plays we're going to call against the Oregon defense. And so that kind of seemed like maybe it was a problem because of the amount of preparation they were able to have with COVID protocols. There's excuses that are potentially there for why the offense just had such – a lackluster start to so many games. and But then at the same time, you had games like at Utah and some other instances where they didn't necessarily play like that the whole game except for the last couple quarters. So, yeah, it is it is a matter of, of them coming out of the gate stronger offensively. And listen, when you have this type of offense, when you have this type of scheme where you're going fast-paced, you want to throw the ball a lot, you have to score early. Scoring early is is what puts pressure on the other team's offense. And that enables your defense to be able to play a certain way to exploit that. The defense is able to get uh, uh, – they're fielding against an offense that's taking a lot more chances because they know that their opposing offense, which is your offense, is going to score and score quickly. This is what Oregon did with Chip Kelly. Now, Oregon did it differently because they ran the ball more, but it was, we're pressuring you by the amount of points we can score. You know it. And we got 14 points in the fourth quarter, quarter already up on the board. You're, you know, starting quarterback and your offensive coordinator sweating, going, God, we got to keep up with these guys. So they start to take more chances, and that plays towards the defense. And that's not what USC did last season. They didn't do that at all. They allowed these offenses, some of them being very sort of underwhelming, mediocre offenses, to just kind of stay in the game and be able to score some points and go through it, play ball control offense. And that's not what USC wants offensively, and that's not what they want as a team.
1: Yeah. Well, we have a running back question uh, email from Bay Area Trojan. He says, there's been a lot of movement in the transfer portal this offseason. What keeps me up at night as a Trojan fan is the turnover at the running back position. I know the air raid is to blame for that, but that's a gripe for another day and another email. Anyway, Stephen Carr waited until after spring ball to announce he was on his way out. Do you think? Uh, Ingram transferring from Texas prompted him to leave, or did the staff expect a player or two to leave? And that's why they brought in Ingram. Regardless, USC hasn't had a marquee running back since Rojo. Is there a particular target in the next recruiting cycle? We have a good chance at signing. Keep churning out those podcasts, guys. The offseason is too long to go without college football content. Thanks. That's Fight On from Bay Area Trojan. Well, I can tell you specifically with Stephen Carr –
2: That was a transfer that was in the making for more than a year. Uh, There was a lot of people that were close to Stephen Carr that felt he should have left USC last year um, before even the 2020 season was going to be a season and was canceled. So, yeah, I don't think from USC side of things, it was unexpected He liked USC. I think he liked USC not just football-wise, but he liked USC as a university. He was very comfortable at USC. So I don't think Keontae Ingram really had a lot to do with anticipating that Stephen Carr would leave because a lot of people thought he was going to leave, and he didn't. It was more they liked Keontae Ingram. They didn't really hit on the running back position the way they needed to. In the 2021 class, they got Brandy Campbell, who's a solid player, but they needed two. They needed two running backs in that class, and they only got one. And they really wanted to sign two in the previous class to that and didn't. So it's one of those things where it's like you got to go in the porthole, and you got to try to get quality players. And Keontae Ingram is a quality player. I mean, he's a guy that's a little bigger. Uh, he's not marquee step. Keely and I kind of talked about this because that's – Really, the guy that leaves that you go okay. Well, we need another running back at this point. Stephen Carr, no Stephen Carr. He's not a 230-pound power back, and he's not a guy that on third and three is necessarily going to be able to move the pile. I think the thing that was really good about Step was he just has a natural inclination as running back. Um, he sort of has a feel for finding the hole, and he was big and he was strong. He was able to lean forward. He was able to get seemingly extra yards. Even when yards weren't there, can Green really isn't that guy. You know, he's only about a 200 plus running pound running back. I mean, he's probably closer to 210, 215 at this point, if I had to guess. Um, but he's not on the side of being a real power back. So he's kind of, I guess, if you wanted to make a, a an argument for comparing him to former running backs, you could say he's a little bit of a split, maybe between Marcus Step. And Stephen Carr, you know, he's, he's running style a little actually more like Stephen Carr, uh, but he's a little bigger than Stephen Carr. And he's, he's probably a little more physical than Stephen Carr. Um, and then he's a very good receiver, though, like Carr and Step were. Um, and he has a little more, uh, I think a little more in his tank, perhaps. I think with Carr, one of the biggest issues was just that back surgery he had and sort of lost that step, didn't really seem to ever get it back. And it's tough for a running back when you, you lose that acceleration uh, but you still have those moves, and you kind of end up being a guy that you know you can make three guys miss, but still only get a yard out of it. Whereas you know if you have that acceleration, you're able to make those guys miss, and then you're able to 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 get loose in the open field and break angles. And he wasn't able to really do that, so it wasn't you know a lot of tears I think from USC side of things when Stephen Carr decided to transfer. Um, it's going to be uh, interesting to see what he does at Indiana with Dalen McCullough, um, because he's, you know, very, very good coach and really has done a lot with less at Indiana as a running backs coach and put guys into the league that were very under recruited. So we'll see, you know, what he's able to do with a former five-star and a guy that, um, you know, fits their, their, their program very well, fits their office very well. And, and a team that's really on the upside. I mean, Indiana was really good last year. Um, you know, they, they, beat a lot of teams, a lot of traditional teams. So it's going to be interesting to see if they're able to follow that up with, you know, people sort of knowing about them and them having a little more of a target on their back this season. Um, But for USC, yeah, I think um, looking forward, um, you know, we talked about Gavin Sawchuk, We talked about Javante Barnes. That's sort of, I think, um, kind of the top of the list for USC. Um, You've also got Rayshon Luke, Speedy Luke, the uh, five – 860, 65 pound running back out of St. John Bosco, a guy that's um, definitely a little more slight, uh, a guy that I don't know that is a every down back, uh, a little bit more of an all purpose back, but a back that fits well in this type of offense. You know, a back that uh, is a receiver and a guy that you can get into space um, has been uh, very good for St. John Bosco, uh, one of, if not the fastest football players in California which is also something that you want to interject into that running back core that USC has. They don't have a lot of speed right now at uh, running back for USC. They've got a lot of um, running backs that are sort of almost like possession receivers as running backs. You know, They're combo backs. They're not necessarily really big, and they're not necessarily really fast, but they're big enough and they're fast enough to get some yards here and there and uh, to be able to uh, potentially – you know, have a solid running game, but, you know, that obviously involves the offensive line as well, and it involves the play calling.
1: Yeah, I got to see Speedy a couple times, and uh, he's definitely fast. You, Every game I saw, you would break a big one, so uh, I think USC fans would like him. Let's move on to Steve and Poway. This is about the offensive line coach, and he says his way too early starting lineup. He said, now that spring camp is over, and you've had a chance to see the new offensive line coach, Clay McGuire, in action – how would you say his approach to coaching differs from Tim Drevno's? Do you notice any difference at all? Um, I guess we can start with that. It's Unfortunately, Steve, it's really hard to see uh, from where we were. Um, you know, the, the limited practices we got to see as far as like, hey, how is this approach different? I mean, he had a lot more players out there uh, when I got to see practice. And, you know, that was the most offensive lineman I could ever remember at a spring practice Um you know, that was different. I, I'm not sure we're going to see a whole lot until we see uh, some games and stuff. And, you know, maybe some fall camp. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Jordan. I have none because I have
2: not seen him up close. Um, you know, haven't really even heard a lot about him philosophically. I know with Trevno, you know, he was a very technical coach. And he was a guy that liked to get into the weeds of the technicalities of, uh, of linemen and what he looked for. Um, I think he looked at himself more as a coach than a recruiter. And obviously that boded well for him when he was at Stanford and some other places. But I think, you know, when you get to Michigan and USC, um, you know, USC missed out on some guys that were potentially uh, franchise type players. You know, those left tackle types that you have to have. And at this point in time, you know, coming away from Neil Callaway. And then Drevno, who actually came to USC as a running back coach and then was transitioned over, which, you know, kind of hurt USC in two ways. He wasn't really a running back coach and wasn't a guy that had a lot on his resume in terms of developing running backs. So recruiting running backs, it was very difficult for USC with that. And then you transition him to the offensive line and he had a couple years there to recruit the offensive line. And they just didn't do well, um, despite losing some top players. And so it's it's always, you know, with recruiting, it's always about replacing what you've had um, for some schools when you're at the very top, like an Alabama or an Ohio State, you're stacking the deck. And that's really what good recruiters do. Um, that's what Dante Williams and Craig Niver are doing. They're stacking the deck. They recruited well last year. Hey, let's bring in some transfers that are good players. Okay, now let's recruit the 2022 class and bring in some good players. Okay, there's no excuses to, well, you know, we have this player that was really good two years ago, and he's scaring everybody away. Oh, he was so good, he scared everybody away in the two following recruiting classes. That doesn't happen. Dante Williams is not sitting around talking about how guys are going to get scared away. He's selling what he can do and what he's done for other players, and so – that becomes a big deal in the recruiting process. And for whatever reason, Tim Trevino just wasn't able to get those type of guys. Again, I think he sort of, you know, fancies himself more as a a coach that can coach up players um, than a guy that's going to be um, going out there and and landing all the top uh, franchise left tackles. With McGuire, obviously he comes from a place as well where he's recruiting uh, under-the-radar type recruits. Um, Going after guys that are not the franchise type of players um, at Washington State and at Texas State, you're not going to recruit, you know, a top level guy like a Zach Rice. You're really having to depend more on development. And so it's really, you know, budding together two offensive line coaches that are more development types. And, you know, USC sort of has to do that right now because they are into the roster and the depth chart. Where you're going to have to develop some guys and some talent. Um, you don't have, you know, any marquee guys that are just coming through the door right now that are going to play left tackle for you. So, yeah, he's going to have to make uh, more with less. Um, at least from a rating standpoint, he's going to have to get some three stars to be able to play at a higher level than they were recognized in high school. And so, um, yeah, it was. It, it was. You know, we talked about this when he was hired. It was. It was sort of probably the best that they could do um you know you want the guy that can recruit and develop obviously you want that guy you want the guy that you know can go out and and, and recruit guys like you know pat rule was was a, a good example of a guy that was an nfl guy that came to college and he you know coached college before he was at miami he was at kansas but he had really good development skills you know he had a ton of guys that You know, we're we're lower level guys, but, you know, he would just bring them in and and they'd lose guys and he would always have a good offensive line. And he was able to sit in those houses and recruit toe to toe with the best offensive line coaches for the best players as well. And so you kind of had the best of both worlds there. And uh, if you're not able to get that, I think with the situation and then the circumstances USC has with the offensive line in terms of the players that they've lost, and now, you know, you've got Elijah Bear Tucker, who that was really big for them to be able to have him play offensive tackle. Last season and, and and play as well as he did. Obviously, it helped his draft stock uh, immensely, and, and, and made a great decision coming back to USC instead of opting out. Um, but now you don't have that sort of that patchwork uh, option to be able to throw out there a left tackle. You've got to develop somebody. You got to find Cortland Ford. You got to have Casey Collier. Um, you got to have one of these guys that uh, that that comes out of the woodwork as a three star and is able to step up and be a, uh, a big time player and a guy that's uh, going to be draftable in a couple years. I mean, if, if USC is going to be successful off the line, yeah, one of those guys is going to have to turn out to be uh, a draft pick at some point, you know, maybe a, a first, second day draft pick. And so that's going to take development. That's, that's what you have to work with. That's what you have to develop with. It's not, Hey, we're going to go out and get a 2022 guy. No, no, no. That 2022 is, is next year. <laughs> 2021 is gone. It's past. You have to work with what's on the roster right now.
1: Yeah. You also want to know uh, our early uh, prediction for the depth chart, and uh, if you want to check out the site, um, Chris Trevino, his 2.0 version of the uh, the depth chart. Um, you know, he wanted the starting Steve uh, wanted the starting lineups, but the 2.0 de- uh, version of the depth chart came out in early May, and then RJ okay. Abadia uh, added on to that with. Um, recruiting rankings there but I can kind of go through real quick like Slovis would be the starting quarterback he's got Keontae Ingram as the starting running back um Jude Wolf as a starting tight end uh Gary Bryant Jr. is the starting uh Y receiver and Katie Nixon is the starting A receiver Drake London on the outside of the Y oh no I'm sorry um I'm sorry that, that Drake London be the X receiver and then uh Brew McCoy as the Z. So those are the starting. He's got Cortland Ford as the left tackle. Voorhees as left guard. Um, Brett Nealon at center. Uh, Liam Jimmins or Jalen McKenzie or Justin Dienich at right guard. And then uh, right tackle Jalen McKenzie or Jonah Monheim. So any any discrepancies there? Do you, you think all those are about right, Gerard?
2: I'm just kind of pulling that up now. Um, uh
1: yeah, well, I go over the, def- the. I mean, okay. I think that on the and on the defensive side, uh, Nick Figueroa's. He's got the starter at defensive end. Um, at t- nose tackle, either Jay Toya or Ismail Shop- Um Defensive tackle, they got Tuli Tui Pelotu, the the hybrid B backer guy. You put Drake Jackson there, the Mac linebacker Raylan Goforth. Uh, the rover linebacker, Kenai Mauga. Uh, for cornerbacks, um, Chris Steele uh, and uh, Isaac Taylor Stewart are the two starters he has there. Free safety, Isaiah Polamau, and strong safety, Chase Williams. And then at nickel, Greg Johnson. Um, yeah, so that's the defensive side. But anyone on either side of the ball you want to discuss, Jordan? Well, going back to the offense, I mean, interesting.
2: I know USC is pretty high on Jude Wolf. I mean, I've heard good things about him, even though he really hasn't played a whole lot. Um, I've heard some, you know, positive things about him. Interesting that in this certain this write up, we're looking at him and he's going to actually overtake Eric Cromenhock, who I mean, for what he does, you know, being a guy that's a blocker and being sort of a steadfast type player. At that more traditional H back slash inline tight end spot, I don't know. I don't know if he can. If that's going to get changed, you know, I I I, I kind of think USC feels like um, why well, fix it if it's not broke, you know. In their eyes, it, it, you know, I've, to actually have uh, Wolf jump him would be interesting. Like I said, I've heard you know a lot of good things about Jude. Um, and, and I know USC is high on him, but, um, I surprised to see that, you know, they're going to try to bench Cromenhoek, uh, there. I thought that was, uh, kind of an interesting thing that stood out. Um, yeah, Gary Bryant as the Y and then seeing that, um, Drake Jackson actually bounces out and does the X. I mean, that's kind of what we talked about a little bit with Mike Trigg. Um, that, uh, that's Drake, Drake London, but yeah, Drake, Drake London. Sorry. Um, (laughs) That's, I know, I, it's, it's forever. Um, the interesting thing about that is, you know, you're changing almost the personnel type when you're talking about the Y, the X, and the Z. The Y has been Drake London. And for the most part has kind of been that guy that's been in the slot. Um, you know, they, they do move guys around. I mean, they, they had Amon Rob St. Brown play in the slot as well. Um, but that's sort of an interesting thing when, you know, you're – you're bouncing Drake London out wide. You're kind of looking at him and Bru McCoy as being your true receivers. And then Gary Bryant in the slot is totally different because you've got a much smaller player now. And obviously being closer to the the, the box, the off to tackle box, you know, how does that affect your run game? You know, when you've got a guy that's bigger like Drake London, you know, you're able to run. And that's sort of what Mike Triggs dad was talking about, him replacing uh, Drake at that slot spot where you have a bigger body there. So it helps you with the running game a little more um, again, sort of a hybrid tight end. you basically have two tight ends on the field. You've got one that's in line, but then you've got one that's in the slot as well. So putting Gary Bryant there in the slot sort of changes the personnel a bit and changes, I guess how you would approach uh, running the football. Um, he says uh, Colton Ford uh, at uh, offensive tackle over Casey Collier, I think that's interesting. I think Casey Collier, to me, has probably the most upside on the offensive line for offensive linemen, just going back to watching him in high school because I really haven't seen a whole lot of him um, actually playing uh, at the college level at this point. Nobody has. Um, but Cortland Ford was able to play a little bit last year and was decent. Uh, they, had a, they had a decent game. you know, um, That was that Washington State game where it was the, the, the complete opposite of every game they ever played where they came out and they just blew him out in the first – Uh, quarter, (laughs) the first, I don't know, it was like 15 minutes of the game. And then the rest of the game, they basically just sat on the ball. Um, And that was when the offensive line had to come in and uh, it was, uh, they had a bunch of players out because of COVID. And so you had Cortland Ford come in and some other guys that came in and uh, he played well. Um, I've always looked at Cortland Ford a little more as a right tackle though. And so I think, you know, when we're talking about left tackle uh, for me, I think it's kind of got to be Casey Collar or bust, you know, throw him to the fire. I think he's got the most athleticism, the feet, um, to be able to end up kind of winning that job. Um, or he's inside I think is, is is good, is solid. I think that's, you know, a bit of a reach to put him at offensive tackle. I mean, right tackle, not so much, but, you know, the talk of putting him at left tackle, I think, ugh, that, that I, I think you're limiting yourself a little bit athletically and you're going to get exploited by defenses and pass rushers that are speed pass rushers if he's out there at left tackle. Um, defensively, I, I'm surprised you didn't see any – you know, uh, no no hints of uh, Corey Foreman here in the, the oh, rotation? Oh,
1: this is only for the, the guys that were on the spring roster. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so, that's what people on the Peristyle said, too. So they're <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, so... No,
1: so he'll definitely... what's that When he rolls in, that's what everyone wanted to know. Like, where's Corey Foreman? Like, yeah, this is guys that were there in the spring.
2: Yeah, and Rayshon Davis will probably make some, some noise there at, at linebacker as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I think... Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, everybody's returning basically, uh, you know, because he didn't have anybody that, uh, you know, was going to graduate, you know, they got that extra year. So the only guys that left were the guys that left for the NFL and um, you kind of could see that coming. So it's, uh, it's solid, you know, to receive receiver core. I think they got a lot of options. I do think, you know, the talk of moving Drake outside and, you know, the, the, Gary Bryan is the guy that you want to get on the field. I mean, I think just in general, you want to find a place on him on the field because he does things differently than the other receivers you have. You can get into that, you know, the defense can play like a short zone on you and sort of bubble defense when you only have those type of bigger possession receivers. you got to have a guy that can stretch the field, and Gary Bryant is that guy. He is that fast guy. So, I mean, I think you definitely got to get him on the field. It's going to be interesting to see if they actually do put Drake out wide and put Gary in the slot and how does that further affect the run game or lack thereof.
1: We got one from John in Oakland, an email about the NCAA and NIL in California. He said, I heard your podcast with Bruce Feldman discussing name, image, and likeness. Everyone likes slamming. I think he's talking about the NCAA. He didn't put the NCAA there. But I think he means everyone likes slamming the NCAA as not doing anything on NIL. However, they have issued earlier this year an informative question and answer document. Uh, There's also... Yeah. So he said they put information on a website. I've read several of the upcoming state laws on NIL and none seem to be really at odds with the NCAA information. I was wondering if you had any of this information, had thoughts on how it would impact USC and other universities in California when the state's law, the state's law kick into place fight on John and Oakland. So I wrote a five
2: part piece on this, um, California Bill, uh, was a 206 or something? I can't remember off the top of my head what the name of it was. I would encourage you to go check that out. I mean, I went into depth about how it affects not just, you know, college football athletes right now but the recruiting process and how far does it go down. You know, do we have high school kids that are doing sponsorships and getting endorsements? How does that work with boosters? And are boosters allowed to have businesses and be involved with recruits? You know, you're going to have the money that's above the table and you're going to have the money that's below the table. That's been college football for a very long time. And the hope is that more money is above the table now because it can be. And so it's tracked better and, you know, schools are not doing things that they shouldn't be doing. But you can make the argument that, no, no, it will still be dirty and there will still be schools that will be using, you know, the, the legit businesses to launder money to recruits below the table. Um, I think the biggest question I have, you know, having wrote that and and studied and gone through all these different various scenarios and things, whether it was, you know, just the the players themselves that are playing college football or the recruits, is really the bigger sort of collective bargaining agreements that have to come from somewhere. And who's going to negotiate that? You know, the NFL has Players Inc. The NFL has a players union. There are TV rights and things And everybody's sort of very dismissive as well. Players are not going to really want anything to do with that. Yeah, I mean that's not the players are just you know it's only going to be the top one percent of one percent guys, the Heisman Trophy winners. They're going to get make any money from this anyways. EA Sports wants to put out an NCAA football game. They have to have the rights from these schools to put licenses, to put emblems, put logos, etc. But they also have to now have the players involved in this. And they have to have them evolve, evolved across the board. EA is not going to deal with every individual player on every individual team. When you deal with the NFL and you have an NFL license, you deal with the Players Union. You deal with Incorporated. All these things are bundled together. You say, hey, i get the license, and that means I can do A, B, and C with all the players' likeness. You're going to have to have this for college as well. And I wonder how is that going to manifest Who is going to be involved there? Does the NF – or excuse me, the NCAA um, sort of transform itself into something like this? Do they they all of a sudden become – You know, maybe uh, they're going to have a branch, which will be a legislative branch, but then they're going to have a branch that somehow um, manifests itself into a – I think I just said manifest it, which is not a word. Manifest man. Wow, that's not an easy word to say. They transfer <laughs> themselves. Let's go with that word instead. It's English. Um, into a, a sort of a representation of sorts for for companies and corporations to deal with the players as a whole. That's a big question for me. The individual stuff. I think it writes itself. It understand. You know, it's very understandable. You know, somebody's going to go and say, Hey, you know, Coca Cola wants to do commercial with uh, with with King Slovis. Uh, you know, that, that they deal with Keaton Slovis. Keaton Slovis is going to have some representation there. He's probably going to have to have an agent, etc., cetera, so on and so forth. That is what it is. That's very easy. But it's more of the bigger picture with things like TV rights and, ga- and video game deals. And when a company wants to involve NCAA football, college football, all the teams, all the players, and have some type of representation, then everybody's going to have to get a paycheck. Who's going to negotiate those deals?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a complicated um, issue, and I, the problem is every state has different laws, and some of the states have wacky laws, so they need to get something pushed through there. But uh, check out that five part piece that Gerard was talking about, and you know even guys like Bruce, they're just not just not sure yet. There's just so much going on. Um, they, I mean, I think the NCAA could have been out ahead of this if they wanted to, but they weren't. So now they're scrambling to try to fight uh, what all the states are doing. We got
2: one last. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was. I was gonna say yeah. I mean, it's like uh, almost like the cable companies with. uh you know, satellite is like, you know, they just decided, hey, they, we like our monopoly. We're just going to hang on it. We're going to sit on our hands for as long as we can and milk it as long as we can until a new technology comes along. And it's like, boom, OK, you know, you're you're <laughs> you're out of sorts, You better uh, scramble. And, and that, you know, there's going to be something that has to happen on the federal level. You can't just have a bunch of different states having different interpretations of, you know, what's legal and what's not legal, what's binding, what's not binding, etc. so on and so forth. And like I said, right now they have different dates. The California uh nil uh, law does not pass until 2023 so is uh, usc and ucla and, and cal and everybody going to be uh beholden to that while florida passes uh, a law that's july it's july 1st i think where they can have nil and they can pay kids and then sponsorship have sponsorships etc and so forth no that, that's going to be completely unfair i mean the recruiting process would be just, I mean, not that it's, there's not already some unfairness, but that would completely tilt it to where, you know, I mean, most of Pac-12 schools would just, you know, just turn it in. Go ahead and start playing intramural football because you're not going to compete on the recruiting trail with uh, with schools that are able to, uh, to, to not just pay kids and pay players, but sell it. You know, we don't know what it's going to look like in terms of the monetary advantage for the players, but just the selling of it to recruits Is going to be huge. The name of that article was California Senate Bill 206, and then I did a recruiting impact, money problems, the benefits of branding, the individual, and the collective, which I think is the one part of it that's the most interesting, and then uh, the experts weigh in, which I talked to uh, various different recruiting experts and other people that – you know, cover recruiting and, and how this might affect recruiting and how it might affect players. Uh, spoiler alert, a lot of people just didn't really, I think, understand and research as much as I did about it. So I don't think they had really strong opinions about how things were going to, you know, play out either way. Um, but uh, they're going to have to figure it out and, and people are going to have to research and understand it a little bit going forward because it's coming. It's inevitable.
1: It's coming. Uh, we got one last one. Our buddy Dan, class of 1962. He says his dog Oliver gives us five barks. Thanks, uh, Oliver, for that. But he said Bruce Feldman was a terrific guest, but we always miss hearing Keeley. Well, sorry, Dan, you're going to miss hearing her again. You get Gerard, uh, but great to hear that you will have Dan Weber on the show with his take on the new commissioner. I, I I'm not sure I said that, Dan, but uh, we haven't. I haven't talked to Dan Weber to see. We, we said we try to get him on at some point, but I don't think that's eminent. Uh, but we'll see what we can do. Hey, I, uh, I don't. I don't think you
2: should do that. I don't think that should happen until the new commissioner starts to talk about TV revenue. Because that's that's when Dan Weber, that's when he's gonna be on it. That's when he's he, Yeah, he's gonna be more interested in that and he's gonna be probably delving into that and he'll probably have some very strong opinions because obviously had some very strong opinions throughout with the way that Larry Tennis decided to uh, you know, play the Pac-Twelve deal with the the direct tv and tried to play hardball and how that just basically fell apart and um you know so many other things that that you we have to kind of find out and see you know where are they going to be headquarters is there going to be some big changes with uh, the pac-12 network and um just the approach from the pac-12 in general I mean is it all going to be vegas is everything going to be in vegas you know everybody looks at that and says well you know vegas is an exploding market and you know they could move the pac-12 network there and et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, you know, I think we got to have a little bit more there that we can chew on and then, uh, Dan will go to town on it.
1: He will. And uh, I actually put a request in to interview George Klayopkov. Uh, so he's the new PAC 12 commissioner. He's going to, he doesn't start till July 1st. So they're going to start doing some then. So we should be able to get him on the podcast with champions, which should be good. Um, but he goes on to say, if the PAC 12 doesn't improve under the new commissioner, what are your thoughts on USC and possibly UCLA doing something like Notre Dame is doing in the ACC? USC and UCLA could play a rotating schedule of five games in the Big 12 with the remainder of the schedule made up with non-conference games plus Notre Dame. It would be would not be difficult for USC and UCLA to schedule non-conference games because of teams wanting exposure in Southern California. Also, basketball and spring sports would fit well in the Big 12. Slide on and win Dan of Class of 1962. I don't know. The spring sports, I don't think they'd fit well. Uh, if your water polo team has to go to West Virginia for a conference game, that's probably not uh, ideal. But um, I don't know. Thought Any thoughts there, Gerard?
2: I'm not 100% sure what the – what's the pitch here? That the Pac-12 or USC – they go independent, and then they just have a sort of quasi-association – for some sports with the big 12. Is that what he's doing? Yeah.
1: So basically what Notre Dame's doing with the ACC, I think if you're going to leave and you're going to be independent, you go independent. If you're going to leave and you're going to join the big 12, you join the big 12. And as a, as a package deal, there would definitely be appeal for USC and UCLA, you know, Southern California recruiting, uh, the Los Angeles market, you know, two historic programs, football and basketball that you would, you know, instantly, boost the prestige of your conference like i think there's appeal for the big 12 there i don't know if they would be you know doing it the half-assed way that notre dame does in the acc i don't i don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense i mean you'd be better off keeping your olympic sports in the pac 12 and then just being independent in football or something but um yeah I, I don't know if that model would work yeah i forgot west virginia is part of the big 12 right now aren't they <laughs> yeah they are. I mean, you're, you're that's a long like you you're, you're going to be going a long way for a lot of these sports so the bigger uh, problem and, and
2: you know is sort of the snobbish nature of academics when it comes to the Pac-12 as well you know we know that was sort of an issue when Larry Tennis was trying to recruit some of the Big 12 members into the Pac-10 at that point and you know it was like uh, they didn't want Baylor cuz Baylor didn't have very good academics And then Baylor, you know, went to the state council and they were making threats and they were basically saying, you know, we're tied at the hip with the University of Texas. Um, Yeah, there's there's a lot of nonsense that gets involved that has nothing to do with football, has nothing to do with sports, unfortunately, with these universities and their associations and their partnerships. Um, So I agree with Ryan. I I think if you're going to take that step to do anything from an independent nature, you go all along. And you do it, you know, like BYU, basically, and say, okay, we're going to be independent. It it works a little better for Notre Dame in that from a um, time zone standpoint and a distance standpoint, obviously, Notre Dame is closer to more uh, big time power five football teams and schools. And, and, And that's true, you know, even of other sports. It just in terms of their location, it's a more centralized point. One of the biggest issues that the Big 12 schools have had with the Pac-10 and the Pac-12 and they're, you know, deciding to expand and become a part of the Pacific Conference is that you're, you're talking about two, two time zones over. And there's been some, you know, and I, I don't know how much of an issue it really is, but been a lot of talk of, you know, hey, uh, do I really want to stay up till 10 o'clock at night to watch the Pac-12 after dark when it's midnight you know, you know, in 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 Austin or what have you, and, and a lot of that talk sort of in terms of the, the time of games and and the time of when you're scheduling events and things, and being two time zones away, it's much more significant than it is just being maybe a time zone away. So, I, again, I mean, West Virginia is part of the Big Twelve. That's a pretty long trip. It's not in the time zone that uh, that Texas or, or Oklahoma is in. I, I don't know. I. I you know, is there hope there that that at some point, you know, you could see um, a, a sort of merging of, of brands, you know, with the Oklahoma and the Texas and, the, you know, USC? You, you, you kind of hope so. I mean, I, I feel like it would maybe motivate USC to some extent. It would, it would light a fire under them because they would see, you know, look at this, this is big boy football. You know, you don't have a lot of big boy football in the Pac-12. Uh, Oregon kind of sort of tries to do it, but truth be told, I mean, they've got a 50,000 seat stadium and it's, it's a really small program. It's uh, supplemented a lot by, you know, the Nike exposure and everything. But I mean, if they didn't have that, it would be a pretty small program that not a lot of people would talk about. And so USC and UCLA are kind of it. Washington also to some extent, I think Washington is really in terms of traditionally, uh, from my perspective, uh, probably the second biggest brand, uh, in the PAC 12 when it comes to football. Um, but you know, that's that, if you were there and you're rubbing elbows with Oklahoma and, uh, in Texas, um, really those two schools f- foremost, you know, it sort of changes the game, but the bar gets raised a little bit, you know, when you're talking about spending and, and, you know, USC doesn't even have their own football facility, you know, that's, that's, that's blasphemy in the big 12, that's blasphemy in the big 10 SEC. So <clears throat> it would be good to expose. Uh, USC, UCLA, um, you know, Washington and Cal and some of these programs to that to say, look at this is this is what it's, how it's done. You know, this is how you invest in football. This is how you invest in athletics. This is these people take it seriously. The question is, do people on the West Coast and in the Pac-12 take it seriously? You know, I, I think, you know, USC, we, we, we have to see what they do here in the near future. But they've they've obviously shot themselves in the foot a bit from the athletic department standpoint. Um, but some of these other schools are, are very suspect when it comes to what type of investment they really want to make uh, moving forward with athletics, and that's just a big question that I have when it comes to UCLA and Cal, so especially the state schools. It seems like there's more politically agenda-driven dribble um, that comes from these schools than than real actual plans and and movement towards. Uh, making athletics a part of the crest, you know, making athletics a very important part of what they do. I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, they could take it or leave it. And that's not going to keep you competitive with Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, etc.
1: Yeah, we actually have uh, one more question. I didn't realize there was a uh, one that snuck in uh, for you. Uh, bear secutor had a question for you, Gerard. Just, just find me no matter where I am. I think
2: I've got a tracking device on me somewhere. I got to figure it out. It might be somewhere under like in my wrist or something. He's put on me. He knows where I am. Even what it, it did you promote this with
1: uh, me being no, on? No, I didn't post it. I just, uh-huh. uh,
2: it was, and it says, suspect, man. He's street sniping.
1: Yeah, he it was in my Google doc. Are uh, there other team questions? I'm like, oh, I didn't see any specifically for you. Um, so he says, which three players from the 2021 class, will get the most playing time as freshmen. He thinks Foreman, Davis and Wright. Um, Do you agree with him?
2: No, I don't know if I would say it would be those three, because I do think Jalen Smith potentially could end up playing a role there over Sierra Wright. Sierra Wright, definitely a very good player, a guy that I think is going to see the field for sure, I think, you know, that great defensive back class, you're going to see a lot of those guys on special teams. You're going to see them flash in the secondary. Um, But I think with Jalen Smith, because he can play that sort of that safety role and you lose Hufanga. And we're going to have to see, obviously, with the two transfers, you've got Chris Thompson Jr. who comes in, who I think is going to play near the line of scrimmage and be a guy that's really sort of more of a star back, more of a hybrid linebacker uh, safety than a prototypical safety, like, um, you know, maybe Xavion Alford, who I think is a little more of a single high safety. He does play near the line of scrimmage, or at least he did as a freshman for Texas, but he's a little smaller and a guy that when he's healthy, I think can play more of the field. So I I would think that you could kind of put him back in the deep third a little more. Um, Jalen Smith is just a guy that I'm very intrigued by because he's just such a good football player. And we've seen time and time again, You know, we talk about 40 times and everything like that. Not to say that Jalen Smith isn't also very athletic, but he's a very good football player. And Alamany used him all over the place. The one disadvantage he has is that he did not play football during the spring. So, you know, like Foreman, yeah, he sort of sat out that spring and didn't play. And so we're going to see how that impacts him. Whereas a guy like Rashawn Davis, I think it really works for him. He played. And so he's coming out of a season, you know, he got a good five games under his belt um, won a CIF title, you know, Gatorade player of the year. Um, he's going to be a guy that, you know, I w- agree with he and Foreman, because pass rush, especially in a pass-heavy uh, conference, you got to have your guys fresh. Those guys can get on the field. You can throw the, you can just throw waves at talented pass rushers at an offense during
1: a game. And then uh, he actually mentions Smith, but he, he wants to know who your three underrated recruits are for the class. He likes Michael Jackson, Joseph Manjak, and then – Jalen Smith he says a baller look at his offers
2: well yeah obviously I I I do like Jalen Smith a lot um I do like Manjack a lot I talked about Manjack uh earlier in the podcast I think that uh he's a tremendous player tremendous talent um third guy I mean you know Lake Cree played pretty well in the spring for USC as a tight end he actually looked pretty good um I think that uh He's a player that uh, you kind of have to look out for a little bit, even though, you know, USC traditionally doesn't use that tight end a whole lot. Um, Just from the standpoint of him being on campus and already playing, uh, I I kind of caught my eye a little bit. Um, I think Anthony Beavers gets a little overlooked as well as a a very good football player. You know, not a guy that's going to run like a spectacular 40-yard dash. Um, I think he's a guy that probably, you know, a little later down the line makes an impact but I think a guy that, you know, he really wasn't underrated. I think that probably doesn't fit that criteria. I mean, he was rated pretty pretty well, but I think kind of overlooked maybe among the, uh, the, the secondary players. And I think in USC's defense in terms of how they use those players, I think uh, he actually fits pretty well and be a guy that, uh, you know, people could overlook because, like I said, he's not necessarily – you know, this amazing 4-4 uh, four, four guy uh, as a safety, but um, just a good football player that tackles well in space. And that's really, you know, what we saw with uh, Max Williams. You know, Max Williams is a guy that, I mean, he's five-eight, five-nine at the most, and was still, he's a good football player. And he was able to make a lot of plays for USC. He goes down. So, essentially, USC does lose two starting safeties this year. It's not um, Isaiah Pullum like we thought. But it's Hufanga, and now it's Max Williams. So we're going to see if they interject some of that uh, veteranship there from the transfers where you get uh, Chris Thompson in there was a good player. Um, or maybe
1: we see a little more of Xavier and Alford. All right. Gerard Martinez, thanks again for coming on. I Man, It was a long one, but uh, good stuff. Uh, yeah. Thanks for filling in for Keeley. It was great. I appreciate it. Uh, I it was uh, like I said, I thought I was just going to come on and just you know
2: rattle off a bunch of stuff about recruiting and an official visit. So nice to talk a little bit about the team and you know hopefully I can give a little bit of um, overlap there from you know recruiting perspective into you know how that transitioned into actual team play and winning football games uh, for USC.
1: Yeah, that was great stuff. Well, that's Jerome Martinez. Thank you so much for joining, and thanks to everyone out there for listening to the Peristyle Pat Podcast. I hope you enjoy the show, and we will talk to you next time. You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products
0: at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices. Every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening